Blog Talk Radio. Hello? Hello? Yes. Can you hear me? Brian? That we are... It appears we're having a little technical difficulty, but um, uh, I'm going to go right on. We we are we're live now. Uh, my apologies to the audience. Uh, there appears to be a little uh, bit too much network traffic, but I'd like to welcome you to uh, Perkins Platform uh, Radio um, this uh, afternoon. Uh, we have two wonderful guests with us, uh, Dr. Yvette Jackson and Dr. Veronica McDermott. Uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we have um, quite a bit planned for today, and um, so um, with only 30 minutes, we just want to jump right in. And um, first, I'd, I'd like to introduce uh, the audience. Um, uh, first, I'm going to talk a little bit with uh, Dr. Jackson about her first book um, on this topic, as I understand it, uh, um, the Pedagogy of Confidence, Inspiring High Intellectual Performance in Urban Schools. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that, and then um, we're going to ask um, uh, Veronica to jump in at any point she, she feels like it. Uh, um, Dr. McDermott um, is the co-author uh, with Dr. Jackson uh, on another book published by um, ASCD um, called uh, Aimed High, Achieve More. How to transform, uh, transform Urban Schools Through Fearless Leadership. For those of you who uh, are just joining us for the first time on Perkins Platform, uh, this is a, um, a show dedicated to issues and topics in educational leadership. And we've had um, a number of guests who have talked about different topics, and this one um, certainly getting a lot more uh, attention. And um, so I would like to just, uh, uh, again, welcome both of you. Thank you for your patience dealing with the technology. Um, but jumping right into um, what is this, um, uh, this, this uh, theory and, and, and practice you have, um, Yvette, about um, expectations and high intellectual performance in, in urban schools? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it all came about when I uh, decided to look at what is it that we do for students who are labeled as gifted that we really should be doing for all children. In other words, we know when students are provided with enrichment, when they're given invitations to really explore their intelligence, when they are given the kind of opportunities that allow them to make vast applications, they are engaged, they're motivated, and they think 
longer and better. And I was thinking about that when I used to be a teacher, and I would say, why isn't this what the platform should be for all children? So I started investigating those factors on both a cognitive and more recently on a neuroscience basis and found that the kinds of educational activities, strategies that we do for those students are exactly what also stimulates neural connections and makes thinking more effective. So my premise was what we've been doing all these years for students whom we call school-dependent students, these are the students who really more need the enrichment uh, even more, we've been doing the exact opposite. We've been focusing on the deficits to the point that we don't even look for the possibilities of strengths. So now the, uh, through the Pedagogy of Confidence and the work that we're doing through the National Urban Alliance, we go in with an, an asset-based approach, which is all about starting with a student's strength to not only engage them, but to really move and build on the skills that might be underdeveloped. Excellent. Thank you. Um, you know, one of the... Um, after reading um, uh, a little bit more about your, um, your work, um, and thinking about um, a lot of what this translates into uh, in terms of expectations. Um, what, what has been your experience, though, in, in urban centers? Um, we talk about intellectual development. Um, what's been your experience among uh, teachers and administrators? Um, is this something that's second nature, or is it really something that you have to work at to get, to get people to understand it? Well, you know, there are two different camps out there. In other words, there are teachers who have believed in this forever, and that's a large number of teachers, but they have been forced to be part of policies that tell them not to focus on strengths but to, in fact, data mine to death where students are weak. Now, those are teachers who are going into their classrooms, though, and say, I don't care what these policies are saying. I know it's good to really elicit and connect to students. Then there are the other ones who have been so beaten down by that same kind of premise about deficits that they don't even try that anymore. They've just kind of... I won't say they bought into, but they're going along with uh, this, this focus on weaknesses. So when we come in now and, and say we're going to take the whole first month of school just to have you identify where your students are strong, we have had the most unbelievable reactions where the teachers are saying they feel alive again, that they feel rekindled because by focusing on student strengths, first of all, the students see that you believe that they have strengths. So the relationships between teachers and students are shifting. Then when students do start exhibiting what it is that they feel that they are strong at, the teachers are saying, you know something, when I go into school every day now, I can work with this. I can work from an area where students can move even more quickly because I'm starting from where they're strong. However, the kind of practices that really enable this kind of philosophy to transfer into instruction does need uh, some refocusing and looking at the kind of strategies and practices. Again, not that are not out there. They are out there, but, again, they are the kind of strategies that have been put in the closet because remediation had played such a, a strong part of the agenda. However, we're changing that agenda, and we're getting, as I said before, really remarkable responses from students, teachers, and administrators. 
Mm-hmm. Which, which sure, actually sure. brings us to the to the other point of all of this, which is that um, this kind of work is really, um, in essence, a reconceptualizing or a taking back of the narrative of what uh, urban students are capable of doing um, and what they're capable of achieving under the right set of circumstances. And what we've discovered in our work, which will not come as a surprise to anyone who's ever worked in the school, which is that there's a, there are powerful influences, cultural school influences, that really shape the, the beliefs, um, the practices, the structures, and obviously that has a tremendous impact on the outcomes. So in essence, um, Yvette's brilliant work on the pedagogy of confidence really set the theoretical foundations, the principles upon which we, we, we hook our work. Um, but the second book was an attempt to say, how do you actually get there? What can you, well, once you believe this, and, and I have yet to find anyone who's read Yvette's first book, The Pedagogy of Confidence, to say we don't believe this. Her arguments are compelling. The, you know, the, 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 it's, it's all so, so obvious. You almost want to say, why, why didn't I see that before? But then the next question is, how do I get there? How can I move my school? How can we move our school so that we can actually elicit those high intellectual performances and change the life trajectory of students who otherwise would, um, you know, would, would be uh, buried under an education that does nothing to really lift them up to where they they can be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, and I understand. You know, um, there if a, uh, the audience um, again, if you're just now uh, tuning in, this is um, the Perkins platform um, on Blog Talk Radio. Um, we have um, a dial-in number uh, that in the last ten minutes or so. I encourage our call our listeners to call in. Um, the number for call in is three four seven eight two six nine zero two nine. Again, three four seven eight two six nine zero two nine. Well, uh, Veronica, you you make some really good points about the um, the administrators and the teachers and and others who have read Pedagogy of Confidence, and so they believe. Um, that that this is really important, and and they believe in the theories and 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 a lot of the strategy. Um, I want to shift a minute, and and we'll come back to that. Um, but I want you to think about it, and tell me your reaction to um, the rest of kind of the universe that's out there working against the um, individuals who are trying to have high expectations. Um, and then the, you have policies um, that are in place that actually work against that. That, um, for example, um, I posted uh, this week about a, a an article in the uh, New York Times um, uh, uh, newspaper, and it, the title is "Schools Ask: Gifted or Just Well Prepared." You know, um, there are exams that are given throughout the country for people um, to get into these uh, gifted and talented programs, or they call them TAG programs, talented and gifted programs. And and so what they found, at least in New York City, is that these special programs for intellectually gifted have uh, 
really turned into places where those who can afford, afford preparation for their children, they're the ones that get in. Tell me the relationship between first between talented and gifted education and what you are talking about here with high intellectual expectations for children. At first, let, let, me, let me hear a little bit about that, and then I want to hear you um, uh, respond to the, you know, what I started with, which was um, the factors that are working against that. Okay. Well, it, what's really interesting is even the way that title of the New York Times was constructed, because what we're saying is so many students who do have the opportunity of being well-prepared they are gifted, and we use the word gifted with a hyphen, you know, G-I-F-T hyphen E-T, meaning they are given those experiences and those preparations that allow them to achieve. And then when we've gone back and looked historically at the, the students or people who have wind, wound up being labeled as, let's say, truly gifted, let's say somebody like Albert Einstein, they weren't doing so great in everything that they did in school. But what happened was they had had the, um, uh, the exposure and the support to identify what they, what he, let's say Einstein in this case, was really interested in and then got the, again, more support to pursue that interest. That's very different than what is happening, though, in terms of the way students are being labeled in school. So, in other words, they're looking at calling gifted students who may just be uh, topping out on uh, achievement tests, but there are several factors here. First of all, the factor that an achievement test reading and math scores do not show the span of one's potential at all. They show how well they're doing at this particular snapshot in time, but it does not show how well they're going to apply that understanding into innovative kind of experiences that will wind up later allowing them to excel in their lives. And so what we're saying is it's one, those experiences, again, that allow students to be gifted, how do we put them into the school system so that everybody can benefit? Now, the kind of repercussions, I will tell you, we have gotten repercussions of those for, from some parents who will say, well, wait a minute, if you're calling all students as being capable of getting these extra experiences, you're going to maybe be taking away from our children what has uh, what we have thought was going to be specialized, and and that's been a, a debate. And so what we've had to do is say, well, wait a minute. If everybody is getting the same high level kind of exposures, then everybody thinks higher, and you can differentiate better, and even see where those children who are already labeled could be excelling in in different kinds of areas. But that has been a, a point of uh, of contention in some areas. But we're not we're not turning around from this theory. If the real purpose of education is to have everybody have their potential drawn out, then we already know what that means in terms of what they should be provided with. And, and it's no surprise that there would be uh, parents who would be uh, spending additional funds to prepare their children to be gifted. It just goes to show you mm -hmm. that even the right. whole notion of what giftedness is uh, mm -hmm. is, is suspect. I mean, I, you know, 
there are many people uh, who who echo the sentiment that all people are gifted in certain things at certain times. You, you know, it, it really is a matter of your your particular interest and how much time you spend in it. And actually, the other issue, which Yvette alluded to, is the notion of what what do we really mean by giftedness? Right. How do we define that? Um, but if you get back to this notion of certain kids having the benefit of receiving many more gifts than other students, that's clearly the case in what's been happening in public education, especially recently, that there are certain schools that are totally under-resourced and there are others that are getting lots and lots of quote-unquote gifts. And our interest lies in how do you how do you level that playing field and how do you disrupt the narrative that the students who are not who currently are not labeled as gifted and who currently are not receiving all of those gifts, how do you disrupt that narrative to, in fact, prove that these kids are as capable and have as much potential as anybody else? But but because of the way society has structured things, they haven't been given the same advantages. Sure. And, and, you know, we... we um, heard at least part of this theory years ago with uh, Howard Gardner's multiple right. intelligence quiz um, and, and countless other both psychiatrists and psychologists who have uh, referred to uh, what you said, Yvette, that um, in some areas uh, individuals are gifted and have very uh, different talents. Um, so I think that's a, that's a very important point for us. Um, what exactly... Um, if, if in, in a particular school, does a principal um, have to deal with um, in, in implementing some of these programs? Um, it, are you finding that it's, it's um, a hard sell? Because I know that there are some places where parents are very competitive, and they actually don't want a lot of children to benefit from uh, whether it's enrichment or other programs that they, I want my kid in tag. Um, right. I want my kid to be in the gifted program. And, and they, they, they actually retreat from some of the schools um, when the opportunity expands. Um, and so what, what are the principles up against when they, uh, when they encounter this? Well, I, I'd like to answer the, the first part of that and let Veronica finish because she's doing so much work with the, around the principles and how to cultivate this this theory. But one of the things I want to bring up is in you know very very uh, high uh, economic areas. Let's say say like a place like Scarsdale, New York, you know, where the people pay a lot of taxes to live in those areas, and they don't have any programs labeled as gifted programs because the thought there is you live in this district because you want to make sure that everybody is getting these advantages, and that's why you pay those big taxes. It's in other areas where there may be some consideration about, well, maybe if we only have X amount of money in this budget, we should only budget so much for students uh, to have these uh, kind of exceptional uh, gifts being given to them to cultivate that. But, Veronica, you want to talk about in terms of the the principal's role and and what they deal with? Right. I mean, I think the leadership role varies depending upon where you're actually situated and and what what the, the, the context is in which you're working. So, for instance, when we walk into 
um, a district that I am going to euphemistically call urban, real inner city, uh, where every school within arm's reach is pretty much facing the same issues. What we find is that um, people resonate immediately to the notion that we, we, we can do better, we want to do better, and we're going to go out there and we're going to start the work. Now, that takes a certain amount of courage, um, and, it, and it certainly is, is, a, is, a, is a battle that, um, that people engage in willingly because they really believe in what's going on, and, you know, they have other issues that they're facing in order to get to where they want to go. What's, what's in my mind, um, a, a little bit different, still requires courage, is when you have... Um, let's say a suburban school district that has a mixed um, population, so you, which frequently happens in urban districts, where you will suburban districts rather, where you'll have one corner of the um, suburban district houses the wealthier students, the students who are coming from families that have many, many more resources, and you might have one or two buildings that have quote unquote those kids the students who are struggling um, with the ravages of poverty or whatever the issues happen to be. Now, there you have a different set of circumstances because now you might have a principal who's got a building that has traditionally been looked on as um, less than, if you will, and you frequently have a board of education that unfortunately does not represent the population that the building principal is dealing with. Or you can have a superintendent of a district like that who sees the inequity and then is faced with the issue of how do I, um, how do, I do right by everyone, which is a very, very mm-hmm. tall order. Um, so so uh, you know, the, the first characteristic, obviously, is that you need a tremendous amount of courage. And we talk a lot about the fact that to be a leader, you need to have a moral compass. And once you've made up your mind about what's best for kids, then you have to move into the notion of being the, the, the architect, the one who's going to set into motion this vision. But I love the image of an architect because architects are people who have lots and lots of skills, but they never, ever, ever work in isolation. They have mm-hmm. other people who are... The um, you know the electrical electrical engineers and you know people who who are the mechanical engineers you, you can't build um, a phenomenal structure on the the basis of one person so for us that means that you need to have a team you need to have a support mechanism um, for their expertise and also for their um, the way that they can you can all support each other because it gets very lonely out there. And, and we know we know of, of stories that have ended well, uh, where people were able, had the fortitude to keep along the fight and managed to succeed. And there are other stories where the forces that be um, crushed the initiative, which is something that you have to go you have to go into this work wide with your eyes wide open, knowing what what you're facing. Um, and so the the other ways that um, that we look at leadership, leadership in a in a situation like this has to be multidimensional. It has to be something that is, as I said, built with a team. But we also talk about the fact that um, not only 
are leaders in these situations, architects starting the thing in motion, they also have to be visionaries. So they have to be, we call them soul friends, that they are, that, I'm sorry, muses, that they are in fact able to function as a muse, to, to rev up people's spirits and say, we can be better, we can do better, and we're going to do it together. Um, they also have to be extremely intuitive and know where they can go to um, to move people to another level of practice or to move people to another way of thinking. They have to be the kinds of people that build relationships. And we refer to that that particular aspect of leadership as being a soul friend, someone who knows you even better than you know yourself. And I think mm-hmm. if we're all honest, we know that there's there's been someone in our life who kind of said, I believe in you, and this is what I see in you. And you sat there and said, oh, no, 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 and found out, yes, 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 they were right. And then finally you have to be a minister. And that, in fact, is the root of the word administration, is to administer. And what we mean by that, a minister, is to, to, to be a go-between, to bring the resources together, to kind of act as the, the clearinghouse, if you will, getting to people what they need so that they, in fact, can do their job. And when those things are working in concert, it becomes a powerful force that can counteract the other things that are happening in, in the life of a school, and, be, and people begin to believe differently about themselves, differently about the students that they're working with, differently about the community that they're working with. And right. When, also invite the community into this because, I mean, the school is theirs. It's not ours. We don't right, own right. the school. Right. And, and I mean, you, you, just, you just mentioned one of the uh, basic premises of leadership, particularly school leadership, mm-hmm. is that you can't do it all by yourself. Right. Um, and, and as I really think about this work, um, where as we are talking about specifically um, high expectations and the expectations for intellectual development in our schools, you usually don't hear those. Yeah, exactly, exactly. exactly. And, well, you know what? So, <laughs> I was going to say what has happened is the term literacy has become a, a new word for remediation. That, you know, for those schools that are in urban areas, just as long as you're focused on literacy and you we, you reached AYP, you know, annual yearly class, that's, that's good enough. But in schools that are in neighborhoods that are very affluent, they would never accept that as being the ultimate of where you want to take the children. It is about intellectual development. And so we push that terminology so people will consider that this is about the gray matter. This is about the fact that all people are endowed with enormous intellectual capacity, and we have not been focusing on intellectual development. We've been focusing on reading and writing, nice tools, but not the expansiveness in terms of what we need to push for if students are going to be self-directed and self-actualized. And, and I, I couldn't agree more with that. And, and as we expand our conversation about uh, what intellectual means, and I, I think um, I'm going to have to invite you both back later on in the year because I really uh, have been uh, spending a lot of time trying to 
grapple with this, with this, this notion of expectation, but then how you get other people um, to to uh, accept that as the norm and not that you're doing something that is, is spectacular when you say that I believe that um, not just that all children can learn, but I think the key is in what you said, that they have um, tremendous capacity. And right. so the, ch- the challenge is pulling that out of individuals. Um, right. And, I, and, and I, I appreciate what you're saying here. Um, I know that uh, we, we're, we only have just a few more minutes, um, but what I, what I do want to uh, uh, mention to you is that I've seen a lot of situations where uh, um, principals have met their downfall. Um, and uh, even superintendents. Yes. So I think I think it, you have to be strategic. It's your message and that I'm hearing also from you. You have to be strategic in the way you approach this. Um, you have to be deliberate. And this is not something you can do kind of accidentally. Um, that it requires development as well. Don't right. and, and, and don't make the assumption that everyone around you is on the same page with regard to this. Uh, because I'm convinced that there's some people that have low expectations for children and don't know that those really are low expectations. Right. They Absolutely. Honestly, they honestly don't know it. And so right. I assume that everyone knows what high expectations or even this, again, this, this, this uh, notion of uh, intellectual development. Um, you you might think that that means putting together the words intellectual, I know what that means, and development, I know what that means, and so I can put a formula together to make that happen. No. And right. I think the work that the two of you have been doing um, uh, through um, organizations like the National Urban Alliance um, go, goes quite a long way um, to push uh, districts and, and and superintendents and board members and, and, and principals alike to to understand and recognize that you this needs to be uh, uh, developed. So I really appreciate um, all that you've had to say today. And um, again, I'm going to have to invite you back um, um, to the audience. I uh, appreciate your patience beginning with the technology um, and invite you uh, to come back. Um, actually, on Friday of this week, you'll have a special broadcast um, of uh, the Los Angeles Unified School District. We have a number of guests um, that are going to be at uh, the American Association of School Administrators Conference. Going to join me um, in a broadcast about school turnaround efforts in Los Angeles policy and practice. And so we ask you to join us. That uh, show is going to be uh, this Friday, February 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, 5 p.m. Um, Pacific Time. Um, we, we're going to have a great conversation, just as the one you've just enjoyed. And so, again, to my guest, uh, Dr. Yvette Jackson, Dr. Veronica McDermott, uh, thank you for all the work you're doing. And really, uh, I, I applaud you and encourage you to keep up the good work. Um, um, with these uh, individuals, um, and and don't give up. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for disseminating. Yes, your message is really an important one. And so, until next time, to the guests, go well, stay well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.